When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome back to The Plays The Thing here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern. I'm joined by Heidi White. We are here to talk about Henry V. Heidi, how's it going? I'm doing great. How are you, David? I'm doing well. Is it... Uh, you said it was snowing there, right? It is. We is it- have just this beautiful blanket of quiet snow. It's like that perfect snow. The good kind. Yeah. The good it's kind. just floating gently down. There's no wind and it just kind of blankets everything it's just beautiful so So, we get a few of those a year and then we get some like ice storms so so. you made yourself a cappuccino and now we're going to talk about books i while you're watching it no right i assume that's the the it's a perfect day really (laughs) just yeah kind of ideal well i hope that uh, everyone else that's listening has uh, got themselves a cappuccino and also is looking up at nice weather or at, le- at least enjoying some nice weather while they're doing the laundry. Um, <laughs> we are here today, as I said, talk about Henry V. We're going to talk about Act 5 of Henry V. This is our fifth conversation about this play. Next week, we will answer your questions. So if you're reading along with us, then be sure to post your questions over on the Facebook page or email them to us. You can email me at david at com or the show at closereadspodcast at gmail.com. So there's both those email addresses. You can also post them on the Facebook uh, discussion page if you want to do so. And I will post a thread there where people can post their their questions. If you want to do it outside of the thread, though, you can just use hashtag closereads and we will uh, be able to sort them that way. Um, today, we're going to be discussing a relatively short scene. So I don't anticipate this... Well, act, I guess, two scenes. Uh, I don't anticipate this episode going quite as long as some of the other ones have. Uh, but before we uh, dive all the way into Shakespeare. I just want to let you know about a new product that we have coming out here at the Circe Institute, uh, or at least a new level of a product. If you know about the Lost Tools of Writing, then you know that we have the first two levels of that, and we are about to release our third level. We're really excited about this, and it will be available to purchase in February. So right now it's January 11th. This is going to air on January 14th, and uh, so in about 
two weeks, three weeks, you'll be able to purchase level three if you're interested in that. It follows up on the the content in level one and level two. Surprise, surprise. But level one, it talks about the persuasive essay, teaches the persuasive essay. Level two uh, dives a little bit deeper on that with the, with the judicial essay, the judicial address. And it turns out the judicial is one of the words that I can't say. It's like entrepreneur. I can't say huh. the um, and in level three, we cover the deliberative address. So it's it's a deeper level, higher level version of the persuasive essay. And uh, these three types of writing are sort of the foundation for all classical rhetoric, and everything else springs out of them, grows out of these three these three types of writing. So as a writing program, level three introduces new schemes and tropes and more tools for writing strong paragraphs, all the different things that you'd expect. Uh, but also, we focused a lot on the idea of Lost Tools as a thinking program in Level 3. So we spent some time introducing elements of logic to help writers discover hidden assumptions and to evaluate their own arguments, and not just the arguments of other people. So uh, we're pleased to bring you the next step in your student's journey through classical rhetoric, or perhaps your own. We know there's a lot of adults out there who are doing uh, Lost Tools or parts of Lost Tools on their own. So if you are interested in learning more about this, you can head over to losttoolsofwriting.com or on Facebook, we have a Lost Tools of Writing support group and you can um, go there and join that group and get some support and get your answer, your questions answered and provide answers to other people if you so desire. Um, but yeah, we've got this, this new program coming out. We're excited about it. I've been working on it for a couple of years now. Matt Bianco has been spearheading this project and he did a great job. So we are almost done with it and ready, ready and excited to bring it to you. But speaking of being ready and excited, let's talk about uh, Henry V who wants to get married. Um, <laughs> So here in Act 5, the battle is over. Um, some time has passed. The play kind of doesn't really tell us how much time actually passed. Passed, I believe historically it was something like three years passed between the battle and the, the, the treaty that was arranged between the French and the English. Is that, do you know if that's right? That's my memory that I'm going off there. I could have done research before this, but I, I didn't research that particular fact. <laughs> That sounds right. It is a significant... I'm not sure exactly how many years, but it is in the multiple years. It's quite a bit of time. So it turns out that when those big treaties at the end of wars, they rarely happen the day after the war and you're just kind of done. <laughs> well, and it wasn't the only battle in the war. It was the demoralizing battle. It was the battle that won the war, but the war continued for a little while after this as well. Although pretty much the victory had been won. Kind of like Yorktown in the American independence, right? Like yeah, that that's was exactly the, the one I was battle. thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And then five years later and or three years later, they signed an actual treaty and then we've got to move forward. And in a right. sense, what this scene is sort of setting up is the possibility of that moving forward. Now we know, as we talked about last week, that historically that didn't really happen because Henry died only five years later or something like that. Again, dates, they're hard, but, <laughs> but he and died. And unimportant when it comes to Shakespeare, but he's <laughs> did. He only sat on the throne for nine years total. Died when yeah. he was 35, I think. It's really one of those great historic what ifs. I remember watching the Branagh version as like a 12 year old or something. Hmm. And at the end of it, they kind of allude to the fact that he died. And I remember looking it up in Encyclopedia, which you had to do back then because you didn't have Wikipedia and you had dial-up internet. And so it really wasn't... You could just find these things as easily. But um, so I remember looking it up and thinking, well, that stinks. He was, this is a great character. And then he just like went and died and that was the end of it. Like this, was, this is his whole story here. There's nothing else that... It didn't springboard him to some 
long reign. I mean, it's like Alexander the Great in some ways. And I remember being sort of as a kid realizing it was one of those instances where the real scope of history sort of struck me in in a way and how, and these things, it's sort of a best laid plans thing, right? Like all these people go off to war and all these people die and suffer. And some people are really brave and you fight a battle and you think something's going to come of it. And then it doesn't really happen. But ostensibly at the end of the play, Henry has this plan for moving forward. Right. And Mm -hmm. so at the end of this play, how do you think that Shakespeare knowing the historic record combined with what he set up for four acts, how does he want us to leave this play? Do you think does he want in terms of, and I guess the question is how does he want us to feel about it? But also what does he want us to, to know what's the sense of empathy or pathos, like all these different factors that come into how you walk away from a work of art. What do you think he's hoping we will take away from it? And I don't necessarily mean what lesson I'm not saying in the moral, you you know what I'm saying. I do know what you're saying. And I, I think we can look to the epilogue and see some of that. Um, the chorus. Yes. The chorus epilogue. With yeah. the chorus. The first four lines of this epilogue, I think, are just magnificent, especially that the, these two, the one starting with in Little Room. But I'm going to read these four lines. Yeah, please do. Thus far, with rough and all unable pen, our bending author hath pursued the story. In little room confining mighty men, mangling by starts the full course of their glory. Mm. Uh, that little, those last two lines in that, by the way, I don't know why he calls the author bending in that second line. I think that is a <laughs> very interesting adjective there. <laughs> I guess it's a verb, but used as an adjective there bending right. author hath pursued the story um could my, refer- my thing says it's bowing but that's it's, it says bowing okay the, well not it doesn't say that but it, there's a note that says that probably he was trying to say bowing okay so he's kind of like even saying, that do you see it as a gesture of humility or i mean i don't I got, know how to, I gotta admit- interpret it with bowing it might be something about the way our culture over the last hundred years has interpreted Shakespeare, but there's not a lot about Shakespeare that I really think uh, that in my mind, I think of as being humble. <laughs> right. I'm sure yeah. he was a relatively nice guy, but there's something about his, the, I mean, he, like there's a, he had a, to do the things he did, you gotta have a certain degree of self-confidence. <laughs> uh, that's certainly true. And, it, and ambition and desire for leadership, certainly. Yeah. Um, uh, and he does seem to enter into, like, fully enter into his tragic heroes. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about him as a person as much as I'm talking about his writing of his tragic yeah. heroes is right. so compelling and complete that it it speaks to an author who knows how that feels, right? Mm-hmm. But we mm-hmm. don't, I mean, it's hard to speculate about Shakespeare because we know so very little about him. Um, right, but, right. But the choruses do tend to apologize for the failure of the theater to live up to the audience expectations or the greatness of the theme of the play. Like that's just common par for the course Shakespeare. I'm really sorry about how much my play has disappo- is going to disappoint you because either the theater itself is too confined physically in the space or the theme is just too much for the play to capture it, right? So, and that's a convention 
certainly, but it also speaks to Shakespeare and how much he speculates on the nature of the theater. Um, so I think that there's some of that going on here, but those two lines that I keep like kind of awe in awe of in little room confining mighty men mangling by starts the full course of their glory. Mm. So if the question is that you ask, which is a great question, what do we leave this play with? I think that is something to mull over. The choruses that open up every act are just so full of this airy patriotism, this call to action, this glorification of Henry. But the play itself is it's subversive. It asks a lot of questions. It doesn't necessarily present him unflawed, nor the course of politics or war. And Mm -hmm. certainly not the common man. Like nobody escapes unscathed in this play from being exposed, fully exposed for their own folly. That makes me think of something you said. And we've talked about this before on, on this show on conversations about Shakespeare, um, that, that he was often, you know, he, he, he was trying to write in a way that wasn't going to get him, you know, his head chopped off. Mm -hmm. And so he had to be careful about his, subversiveness so the way he presented that and in some ways i wonder if the chorus is not meant to sort of preserve his head (laughs) because in the chorus is the first especially in the beginning of each act he can as you said he can present all this patriotism he can sort of make it seem like this is really a play about patriotism and Mm -hmm. and 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 he can sort of hide or bury the more subversive aspects and the complicated questions that he's asking there uh, behind he's asking in the play behind these, these scene or these uh, moments where the chorus comes out and kind of speaks directly to the audience. And I wonder if, so on the one hand, it, it certainly does uh, help present just the historical fact, right? It helps you get from one point to the other in the story. And there is that sort of pragmatic uh, use just uh, for in terms of pushing the narrative forward, but also I do right. I, I can't help but wonder if he was if if it was, there was also a strategic purpose in it thematically in terms of being able to you know bring certain themes forward while allowing other themes to sort of uh, be in the subtext but still hmm. be there like but maybe not be as maybe not be as emotionally felt because you can always if you when you start to feel like oh he's trying to do this you can always say well look what he does here in the in the chorus or if the queen was starting to get angry about something he did in the play itself in henry's lines he can say well look look what the chorus says here right right it's i think that i don't know actually no know. i think that's di- absolutely at least it has to be true again the the history plays are always point counterpoint so this the, the speculation people have of what did Shakespeare actually think about the politics of his day? What did he actually think about this or that? Was he a revolutionary? Was he a conservative? You know, that's, you just, there is no way to tell what Shakespeare thought about anything because his plays are so perfectly balanced, one yeah. on each side. Even those two lines, which are so brilliant, in Little Room Confining Mighty Men, Mangling by Starts the Full Course of Their Glory. What's mangling, right? There's that, that is a really lovely um, phrase right there, mangling by starts the full course of their glory. Is it the theater that is mangling the glory of the theme? Or is it the men who are mangling their own glory through their... Yeah. You know, so there's 
Shakespeare does that stuff all the time. He can't always, his language is so um, versatile. You can't, you can interpret it multiple ways. So I do think that if I were to say, what am I supposed to leave this play with? It is history can be remembered and interpreted by the mirror of the observer. Hmm. So I do, I do think he's saying yeah. that the author is the one that's mangling the starts full the I starts the yes. full course of their glory. However, that right. doesn't you know as with all great poetry that does not mean that it doesn't also say something else or that's that it's exactly not right. at least alluding to or suggesting something. I mean, great poetry is about suggestion, and so I think that the fact that it it sort of syntactically seems to to be clearly saying one thing doesn't mean that it doesn't suggest some other truth as well. That's that's right, which is really indicative of Shakespearean language. Your point about the breach that we talked about a couple of weeks ago that I had never picked up on, and I thought that was brilliant, that it's clearly a breach in the wall, but it could also allude to a breach of contract, which makes Henry's claim right. And mm. um, and so, or or it can mean a breach that that refers to Henry making a claim that isn't right. So there's just this ambiguity in this play, but also a humanity. I, I, there's a lot of modern criticism about the history, a lot of like smash the patriarchy, modern criticism about the history plays. And I don't want to sound like I'm falling into that. I think that's a distortion, a modern distortion of an interpretation, meaning the idea that Shakespeare was just being subversive. Mm. Right. 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 Like right, right. That, you know, lots of people read the plays like that these days. And I get like, I, you know, I really like to read Shakespearean criticism and that just annoys me because I, I read that and I think you can interpret it that way, but the whole point is that you can interpret it multiple ways. <laughs> so that's the glory of Shakespeare is what Keats called the negative capability, the ability to remain in mystery and ambiguity. And he, Keats thought, and I agree with him that Shakespeare mastered that better than any with the possible exception of Homer. So that is the greatness of Shakespeare is that it isn't that he's just trying to subvert. You can read it as a glorious call to patriotism the whole way through and the play absolutely works like that too. So that's what's cool about it. There's these multiple mm. interpretations. So, so given that, as a as a reader who wants to honor the text for what it is, you know, kind of come to it honestly, so to speak. Um, where would you? Uh, um, how would you approach that? And then maybe if you, and then when you're teaching it, how do you approach that? Right. I mean, what's your what's the strategy? If, I mean, do you just kind of follow? Do you try to identify where your students' interests are? Do you follow your own bliss? Do you try to find a? I guess if you're teaching history, I mean, are you trying to be as just literal as possible? I mean, what's, you know, there's all, as many scenarios as there are, are colors, but what's the, uh, what's, what would be your approach given, given the multiple meanings that are available to us? Which right. is not, I, not, a, not, I think we're both, we should probably clarify that we're not talking like about a relativistic approach to this. It's not that they're... Exactly. That, that they you're exactly right. And that is the temptation then is whatever I want this play to mean is what it means. If I'm mad at my dad, then I'm going to be mad at Henry because I don't like, you know, male authority, right? Like, so that, um, that's not, that, that's not neither helpful and that doesn't get to the heart of the play. Because remember, as we're 
as as we approach something like Shakespeare, something like this play that has multiple interpretations uh, and we're trying to teach it, that can feel daunting to a teacher, very daunting. And so to the way that I approach that is pick key scenes. I think that last week when we talked about act four, scene one, uh, the, when Henry is uh, wearing, he goes out amongst his men as Henry Leroy wearing the cape that covers his face, right? The cloak. Mm -hmm. And he has those key conversations about the nature of kingship, which is a theme of the play. So let's say I was teaching this. I, I might go to that scene and then ask my students to talk from the perspective of various characters. What is Henry saying right here when he's talking to, say, Michael Williams? Um, and what do you think, Michael? What, what is Mike? Well, I wouldn't say, what do you think? I would say, what is Michael Williams saying? To, what argument is he making about the nature of leadership or kingship to Henry? And then have the students summarize that in their own words. And then say, well, what and what does Henry say in response to that? And you can go through that through various issues. Even in the first scene with the archbishop and the cardinal, when they're talking, you can say, what is their plan? What is it that they're trying to accomplish? What we want to do is take the students within the play itself, not within themselves and their opinions. So it's the play that has the ambiguity here. And the ambiguity, all, all, all students have their own opinions about it. What we want to do is ask questions that get the students to think about it from the perspective of the master who's presenting it in the art, not their own opinion. So a lot of questions about what is this character saying? What should this character do? That's the big question I think that opens up plays for people. We talk about that at Circe all the time, the should question. What should Harry do in this situation? What should Pistol do in this situation? Uh, How... How could he have responded? How should he have responded? Those kinds of things that get the students seeing the ambiguity and wrestling through it from an interpretive stance, not through their own opinion stance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is not in that should question that we've talked about this just for those who haven't heard us say this. It's not about like judging whether the, the author made the right decision to have a character do something, but from the perspective of the character who is a person, should the character have done what they did? You know, it's not, you're, you're, I mean, you, you're not trying to judge whether the the author himself did the right thing. <laughs> right. Well, and when students, students gets off track on this all the time, especially you know, in the, I, I have found that it is much harder for say secondary school, school students at younger ages, like the middle school kids. They, it's a very hard for that particular age to separate the world of the story from their own world. So if you're asking them, you know, what should my, what should Harry have done, Prince Henry have done in this situation or whatever, then a lot of times they'll respond with like, uh, some kind of moral, some kind of moral that they learned from their parents and then an example from their own life. Because last week my friend did blah, blah, blah. <laughs> right. So you get them back into that. Okay. So tell me, I need you to find me a quote in the story that supports what you just said. Go back to the text and point. And if you know, you can point them to it. You don't have to like just well, be searching around through five acts, but get them to tell you from the text itself so that it's not just their own personal anecdotes. Yeah. And well, so the, the one thing I think I might add to that, I don't know if I'm disagreeing with you when I say this, 
I think I were both. I mostly are. It's fine. (laughs) I think that the nature of a work of art is that it helps us see ourselves and see and see us to like see who we are. So it shouldn't be surprising like that that when we ask students difficult questions or we ask students to think about works of art that they begin to reflect about their own like condition, right? Like their Mm -hmm. own experiences. It's gonna. They're always gonna point us back to things about ourselves that we know or things that or it's going to help us discover new things about us. It's just the nature of like human existence. <laughs> and so I never like when I, I try not to, in, in my opinion, there's this sense in which we don't need to say, well, no, that's the wrong. You're talking about things in the wrong way because they're talking right. about things in a human, when they begin to say, well, this makes me think about this experience that I had. That's not the wrong answer. It's a human answer. It's just not the complete answer. Right. I agree with that. Where do you think, I think this is the hardest part about teaching literature, David. Do you agree with that? When you, when you have these discussions that... It, that the hardest transi- part of teaching literature is just getting all the reading done before class. <laughs> or podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is a hard one for me. I walk this line with my students, with my, with my children, um, that when students are responding to say a should question in this story. Um, Should Henry have sentenced his betraying friends to death? Right. Mm -hmm. That's a really human question. Not that Mm -hmm. our kids are ever going to have to put anybody to death, but they're going to be betrayed by their friends and have to choose between justice and mercy Mm -hmm. or some kind of conglomerate of the two. So, and and I think Henry V speaks to that. Right. So where I think it has to be in the particular discussion itself that that the well, teacher guides that conversation because sometimes you just have to talk about the play, and sure. sometimes you have to sometimes that is evidence of the play doing its work on their hearts. And if you stop them, Mm -hmm. you're stopping that work. Mm -hmm. So here's what I think, like, for example, if you, if that's the scenario that comes up in my kids, my students, my kids, my personal kids are a little bit too young to be having contemplation about that, I would guess. But if I'm talking to like, say a group of ninth or 10th graders or something, and they begin to talk about a similar experience, you know, if, if you say, should Henry, what do you think? Should Henry have done this? Should he have been merciful or should he have pursued justice? And they begin to talk about scenarios in their own life. Then maybe at first it's begin to take them sort of away from the central point or, and even perhaps out of the play. But, but if that, if that begins to happen and they begin to talk about the reasons why they would or would not do something and say, they all say, well, I probably would think that it's the right thing to do to be merciful. But then you can turn it back to the play and you can say, well, that may be true for your circumstances, but why then do you think Harry, Henry pursued the justice as aggressively as he did? And mm-hmm. so then, then, the, then, then the, the, the exercise of comparison, comparing the experience that they've been through with what's happening in the book can help open up the choices that the characters make. So I'm not, I think that there's a degree to which you can let them enter their own hearts for a while and examine mm-hmm. themselves, and then you can turn them back to the play at play. And I think that comparing your your own choices to the choices of a fictional character is a great way to examine your own choices. Um, so I think that there's there's a, just a balance that has to be taken here. Like you probably don't want to do that too long, and you've got right. to always be ready to turn back to the book. But you're right. There's like there's you have to be somewhat nimble as a teacher, I think, to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, now I don't know if 
I'm not saying that their own thoughts should be the thing you rely on and that, mm-hmm. that, that your thoughts are the thing that you, that you prioritize. But I think that the, that the, um, that the sort of internal human responses and even that, that students individually and as a group make based on their own experiences are, can be of, they're certainly of some value because these are human beings we're talking about. And, books are about human beings, even fictional, even if they're fictional, they're still about people. They're still trying to get at the bottom of some of what it means to be human. And so if you make, if you don't allow that to be something that they can, that can enter in their own hearts and, and be part of their experiences and be something that allows them to reflect on their experiences, then you're making it abstract. I think. Right. I 100% agree with that. And I, I mean, that's how, I mean, that's, I don't want to speak for you, but I think this is true. That's how you and I approach literature, right? I read something and it impacts me and we, I make choices differently because something has captured my heart from a story or Mm -hmm. impacted the way I think about something. That's what I love about literature is that it's more than just decoding some kind of abstract message, as you pointed out, what's, Mm -hmm. you know, the archetypal interpretation of, of Henry V, but it's Mm -hmm. a story a story about a human man who wrestled with uh, at very large stakes through these very human questions. And that has direct application to students. But then I also think on the other side, if you, and and I know, I know you agree with this too. This is, this is the dilemma of teaching the great Mm -hmm. books, right? Mm -hmm. Is that on the other side, if you, if you don't let the if you don't approach it also from a literary sense, then you end up with just people saying, well, I just think it's uh, wrong to be ambitious and I don't think war is right. So I just reject this entire play outright because I don't believe in war. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So that I assume you're not judging people who are not in favor of war. You're just in favor. No, I'm <laughs> using it as an example. Right. I, I'm I'm for clarifying for our listenership. Heidi's a real <laughs> warmonger. <laughs> I love war so yeah. much. But that, so anyway, that historical perspective matters, right? And so otherwise then you get just the people who, that I, that I kind of, spoke about negatively earlier who say, you know, well, because of Smash the Patriarchy, I just hate this play. I have nothing to learn from it. And it was all just subversive. And there's, there's this idea of putting our own moral judgments then above the great books has, there's a risk to that. Mm. That's more than just about decoding the work as a literary piece. Right. So, right. So I'm trying to think about how to say this because we're talking about, I mean, there's some obviously there's like nuances to what we're talking about here. Right. Um, so I think that very rarely, even if we, even if you are someone who loves sort of to think about things like on a highly literary level, I don't mean just like a literary level, but I mean like on a highly literary level, like if that's the only thing you really value the, the books that you still fall in love with are you still fall in love with them because of some sort of like there's something emotional there's something inexplicable there's something um 
on a guttural heart level sort of thing that gets them into your blood and you keep going back to them for that reason. Even if you love the sort of literary elements of it, that that's just sort of like feeding the gut level in my opinion. Um, and I mean, gut level very loosely for the sake of conversation. Right. right. And so <laughs> I think that, I think that if we are not as teachers, if we're not, or even as thinking about books for ourselves, if we're not aware of that fact, um, and we're not aware of um, the fact that that's what happens with our students, then then not only do we run the risk of making things overly abstract for them, as I suggested, we also are not helping them identify why they love the things they love. And we're not helping them, like, we're not actually helping them learn to shape their own um, affections, you know, like right. help them identify, like, I, I, that's why I think that there's a certain sense in which we should allow them to talk about the things that they have affection for to identify why not be, not without the book itself, not without the literary elements. They should always, those things should always be close at hand, especially for us as the teacher. We should always be able to turn them back towards that and ask them to show, to identify, to think about why they feel some, feel a certain way. Um, and I, th- this is, you know, uh, maybe this sounds a little bit, you know, sappy or something. But I think that what we need to, if we're not helping them identify and see the things that they love, then we're not going to be able to help them learn to have discernment or shape those loves. Right. Right. To disconnect them, their, their own human element from the book. Right. It's like it disembodies the experience of reading and makes it academic. Right. I mean, Lewis talks all the time about the idea of delight in reading, right? Yes. So there should be, there's got to be a balance between the two. And I think that, um, especially for students who are less inclined toward the academic reading, who are less Mm -hmm. inclined toward what you might loosely define as literary reading. um, I think that for kids who are not inclined that way, one of the the surest ways to, um, to make them dislike reading even more is to not value the things that they delight in, you know? And I think that we have to help them identify the things that they delight in, but also help them see that there's more to it than just that and help them grow in the way that they delight in things. I agree with that. And I I totally agree with that. And I think something like this play, that's a little bit, um, you know, it doesn't have the action of, say, Macbeth. Uh, it, it, there, there is a lot of ambiguity to this play, uh, and so, uh, and it's it's actually just a very male-dominated play. Getting female <laughs> yeah, students yeah. really invested in the history plays takes some doing, especially the Henry plays. Um, <clears throat> so. To go back to the mock conversation or discussion I might have with my students, let's say I'm asking them to summarize that conversation between Henry Leroy and Michael Williams and whoever the other guy is whose name has escaped me right off the top of my head, John something. Uh, So they're having that conversation. And then Michael Williams and the King uh, get into an argument regarding whether or not you know, whose fault it will be if people die and they lose the battle and, and what the king will do and whether or not he'll be brave enough to not take his life for ransom, those kinds of things. And, and that which gets to the heart of the question of the book, right? So um, 
I might ask them, I might ask my students to, or pick a student, hey, can you summarize Michael Williams' point here? What is he saying in this little paragraph? Why do you think Shakespeare put this in prose instead of poetry? Um, delve into those things and ask leading questions if they're getting, you know, if, if they're off base or just totally out there. Ask some questions, kind of get them back in the Socratic style. And then ask them something like this. Do you think he made his argument? Mm-hmm. Do you think he should have convinced the queen, the king, excuse me? Um, now tell me what Henry, how Henry is responding. And then they're summarizing that. What do you think? Do you think Henry made his case? You know, and, and so then go from that academic conversation that's teaching them the literary way of reading. Not That's not just about their opinion, but about what's actually happening in the story. And then take it from there and move it outwards into more does he make his case? What should, how should he have responded right here? And that gets them more into what you're talking about, examining their own soul, connecting their own opinions with the book, allowing the, their, the book to inform what they think and how they're speaking about it. And then, and then, and take that conversation from, from that perspective that then is kind of a crossover between the personal and the more academic. And I think that's effective in those, in a teaching environment in which students are having a hard time separating, um, you know, or only want to answer with, you know, well, my dad told me, you know. <laughs> right. Well, and, yeah. and actually, I think one of the things I want to emphasize is that we would like, I, I guess I just want to say I'm far more into, I mean, you can turn to what your, they can turn to what their dad thinks and that's perfectly fine to some, <laughs> to some degree, but also you want to help them sort of pursue their own thinking, of course. And their dad would probably say the same thing. So, so um, you want them to think for themselves and part of thinking for yourself is identifying like, where's my starting sort of initial response to it. And <clears throat> just to reiterate, I'm not, obviously I think that the most important thing is the book. Um, well, maybe the most important thing is actually the shaping of the, 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 the um, affections of the child. But in the process uh, yeah. of doing that, the, the, uh, the book itself is a very important thing and it should be taken for its, on its own, you know, for its own sake. And we shouldn't try to manipulate the book or make it something that it's not. So that is definitely a high priority and I think should be the, should be the guiding light of the conversation. Um, the tutor, if you will, more than the teacher should even. Um, so I think for the most part, we agree. It's just sort of. Right. I think so too. I just think we're, we're emphasizing the two different, if it's a continuum, right? You're mm-hmm. emphasizing one side, I'm emphasizing this other side. And then we're saying, well, how do you do both? How do you, how do you train a child's soul, a student's soul to make the connections between the academic discipline and their own wisdom and virtue. And that right, that's yeah. what a classical education does. That's the entire goal, whether it's Henry V or, you know, whether it's Tolkien, right? That's the mm-hmm. only thing that we, that, that pedagogy does is let's connect the great ideas to the soul. And of so, course, a conversation is boring if you both stay on the same side of the continuum. So, <laughs> like, we could just sit here and be like, "Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah." Right? Or like, we can all be Jimmy. We can all be Jimmy Fallon for an hour if you want. <laughs> um, all right. Let's before we go here. Let's talk a little bit about Kate. Um, and I want to <laughs> play. Yeah. Well, what do you think? I was thinking a lot when I was reading at this time 
about how genuine you read Henry to be here. Um, uh-huh. it, it particularly, you know, his expressions of affection for, for Kate. Um, right. Do you, how do you, how do you read Henry as a woman? <laughs> how do you read Henry's persona during these scenes? His sort of the way he, the things that he says, the way he's carrying himself. I don't know how he's carrying himself, but you know, I will use right. the term, use the term loosely. Um, how, how do you read Henry in this section? I mean, Henry's ambiguous in this section for sure. And I, I, I don't read his words as entirely sincere. I, and I'm not speaking about whether or not he has, you know, is going to fall in, is in love with the princess. That's mm-hmm. to me, that's beside, honestly, it's kind of beside the point. He wants to woo this princess. And the thing, the reasons he gives her are actually just not true about himself. What he tells her is that he's only a soldier and that he's poor of speech. Those are his two main things. Take <laughs> pity on me because I'm not good at talking. I don't talk good. Yeah. Like that's not true about Henry. We have just spent four plays with this his one powerful thing he does rhetoric. is talk well. That's right. He took a city with a speech. He is an incredible rhetorician. This is nonsense. It is also not true that he's only a poor soldier and his manners are bad and that she should take, you know, so <laughs> that this is a speech designed to woo her. Does that have speak anything to do with his affection for her? I mean, I don't know. I'm not prepared to say that he's he doesn't love her. He's not going to love her, but he is, he has crafted a speech that doesn't tell the whole truth. And that's significant. And I think it's particularly significant in light of scene one, which is uh, about, you know, that kind of weird scene about the leak in the hat with Fluellen and pistol. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that scene, what I like every time I read that scene or see it performed, all I think is, you know, they won this great battle and, and, and they have, they have won France and everything is so great, but everything just kind of went back to normal. These people are still the same. Pistol is still a bod and a thief. Um, Mistress Quickly is dead of venereal disease. Uh, Fluellen is still picking unnecessary fights, even though he's a good guy. There's nothing wrong with the guy. He's just kind of fiery, you know, he's a little bit pompous. Um, so, the, the common life has gone back to normal. And in this scene, I think we also see Henry has gone back to being Henry. He, and which he always was, right? But he is, he is always, he always has an angle. He's always playing something. He's always strategic. And that will, and that will continue to characterize him. So there's been a great victory, yes. And now... You know, but the human world goes back to the way it was. There is no, there is no great moment of clarity and character growth for these characters in this play. Hmm. It, it, for the for the common people. Well, I think even I think even for Henry. And again, I'm a huge fan of Henry, so right. I'm not knocking him here. But I think he is the same, right? He he didn't have some. That happened a long time ago in Henry the Fourth. This is still the same Henry. The thing that has changed is that they won a battle. Now they're just 
but he is still, he's still working an angle in this scene. Do you think he cares about her? Um, I just think it's a different question for a man of his era. Uh, I mean, she's clearly beautiful. That's, she's, she's a beautiful French princess who is going to unite the kingdom. I mean, I don't think he loves her for her mind. Because <laughs> <So, laughs> she can't speak English. Speak so the same what? language. Yeah. So, but I don't think that that necessarily means he doesn't have an affection for her that will build a lifelong happiness according to the social Except rule. then he went and died of dysentery. So. Yes, that is true. So I think one of the things I love about the the emphasis on the lost, the sort of lost in translation factor going on here um, is what will, I mean, it, it, it introduces a great deal of humor, I think, which is necessary yes. for history play. Um, even, even uh-huh. much earlier when the, when she's trying to have a discussion about the war with her maid or whatever her person is. Yeah. Um, that's pretty funny as well. It's and, great. And Emma Thompson plays that really well in the, in the Henry movies, in the Henry movie with uh, Kenneth Branagh. But it also, I think, makes her for Henry, it, it makes their potential relationship, especially in this scene, um, be much more, um, I don't want to say of a conflict, but it, it's sort of, there's a, there's a wall there, right? Mm-hmm. It can't, it can't allow them to be too close because of that. Like they, the, the, in, the sense of intimacy is going to be, there's going to be work to make it work, so to speak. Right. Um, and I think in some ways it, it, it reveals the degree to which she is sort of a symbol. You said she's the beautiful princess who's going to unite the kingdom. And that's what he, Yes. if he, I think that in a sense, he genuinely does love her because she mm-hmm. is that symbol. Exactly. It's not because she is Kate, princess Kate, the person, right? Mm-hmm. It's because of what she represents and he loves what she represents. I think that that is genuine in him. Right. Um, and I think that it's cons- that is consistent, as you said, with who he is and the things that he has valued throughout this play. It's the same things that he values in the Agincourt speech and the once more into the breach speech and into the speech in the speech in Act One, Scene Two, or One, or whatever it is. He's he, it. She represents things that he values, or the possibility of things that he values coming coming to fruition. But right. she's, well and said. I think that the fact that she's not in the play very much makes her something of a cipher, and I think that that is. Um, as a secondary character in the play or even a tertiary character, I think that that is uh, useful from a literary perspective, from a craft perspective, because if she became too much of a real human being, she's much, she becomes that much less of a symbol for the audience. And I think Mm -hmm. that she needs to remain a symbol um, so that, because that's what she represents for Henry. Sure. Just like Lavinia in the, um, in the Aeneid, Right. Like mm. there's, there's, there, there's this sense of, of men need that these great heroes have some kind of object of desire as represented by a kingdom and a woman. Right. And that right. that is then given to them as a reward. You know, and that to your point to humanize her would isn't helpful necessarily to the theme of this play. Actually the only fully realized Shakespearean happy marriage is the Macbeths. <laughs> so that's, Whoa. I mean, this is, it is, marriage is, is a gift 
marriage is something completely other <laughs> than the American understanding of it in Shakespeare. And again, to the, to the conversation we had earlier about how do we deal with that with our students, that's one of those things that, uh, that a teacher has to guide as they get there before, before we teachers as well. I mean, teachers do this just as much as students impose uh, our own values of something, even if, even if it's more moral, right? Like it's actually just better to have a really good marriage of two people that love each other than to be, that have this symbolic thing going on that Harry has. So, um, and yet in order in some, to, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, in order to understand the play, this is his reward. Right. And yet, yeah, and he, talk, and he talks about that. I mean, he talks, he's, he's, he doesn't, he, as long as he gets her, he's willing to make concessions in the treaty. Yes. He says. But, but in a sense, it's true that that is better to have a sort of actual loving relationship than sort of a symbolic a relationship based in the symbol of who the two people are. And yet at the same time, the fact that the two symbols can come together theoretically means that there is a higher good that's possible. Like that there is a, that there is, that it is possible that this war ends and these two countries come together and that, and that's a fundamentally good thing. And so, you know, that, that would be a really interesting thing to get into with students, I think. I agree. And I think what you said is really important it, and that, that, that they remain symbols that, that this, this particular scene is read symbolically. Like if you want to go to the personal level, I think that that is perfectly fine, but you really just don't know much about her and Shakespeare. I mean, that's, that's intentional. Everything she says is through an interpreter or some kind of barrier, or she says it wrong, or, you know, she, she is, she is a symbol. Do you think that that is a, um, I mean, do you, so do you think that I'm just thinking about the chauvinistic aspect of this? <laughs> right. Do you, I mean, Shakespeare is being very, you know, certainly there's the age that plays into that. The, the mm-hmm. time. And then there's also the sort of strategic uh, storytelling aspect of that. Um, do you, do you think that that is something that to what degree do you, I guess, do you, do you spend any time judging Shakespeare or the play for that? I spend zero time judging Shakespeare or the play for that. I do. <laughs> just in general. I mean, just really, I, I am, I do tend to now having said that, that, that in no way means that readers should apply that to our own marriages. <laughs> right. Like there's, I like that you have to add that as a, as I a caveat. Right. Well, I think that's important though, because that is a, it is almost like a lot of modern criticism assumes that students, that readers cannot handle that. Right. That it is that because Shakespeare in the history plays or, or the epics the classical epics kind of treat women like these bounty, these prizes given to men, you know, but, yes. Um, Briseis in the Iliad, Lavinia in the Aeneid, the, this idea of, of a woman as a reward for a man's heroic prowess is, I mean, obviously that's immoral, 
But in order to understand the work, we must accept it on its own terms. That doesn't mean we can't set our own moral judgments on that particular way of thinking for our own lives. We should absolutely do that. But we should tell our boys not to play, put that in their pretend games about the, about the epics. <laughs> so, um, but it's super important in order to understand these works of literature that we do accept them on their own terms and see how they work in a literary sense. And in Shakespeare, women are always important, always 100% of the time. There's some really amazing, strong female characters in Shakespeare, but there's, I mean, in this play, she is a very important linchpin. She is, she has, she plays a very important role, even though she's not humanized and her time on stage is very, very limited. She means something. And in order to understand the play, we have to accept that and not just cast judgment on it. Hmm. I don't know. What do you think about that, David, as a man? I mean, I'm speaking. I don't, I don't know if there's a difference in interpretation on that. Um, I, think, well, I think that there's a, a degree to which it's... Like, I, you mentioned that it's... Um, sometimes a difficult thing to get girls to care about these, these history plays. And I think that that is something that is actually probably worth discussing in a, in a classroom setting. And I think as a man who's reading stories like that, I, there's needs to be a, there's, I, I try to think about that. I try to be aware of that and think about, I try to have empathy for these characters, you know, because even though they're symbols in the play, they're still people, you know? Right. And I think that we ought to try to be empathetic readers. Um, and I, th- and I think that there's a lot of, you can get a lot of subtext by being an empathetic reader. You can grasp, you can, you can, you can get a lot out of not, I mean, you can, I don't know. I don't like to talk about books quite that way, you know, but mm-hmm. there's a lot available to us um, when we, when we look at the implications, right. when, when, when we empathetically examine the implications of things like that. And I think that <clears throat> um, we can be aware of the, the cultural issues <laughs> that are at play there um, and also value the sort of um, role that the that these things play artistically. I think you can do both of those things at the same time. And then I think you can also be an empathetic reader and and allow the empathy with which you read it to to open up a lot of things to you. I think that especially with someone as great as Shakespeare, you can identify that she's a symbol and you can also think about what that would mean for her and you can you can contemplate what that means within the context of her lines or yeah, you can that's read true how she might, you can think about what Henry's lines might sound like to her, particularly in a play where, where we're not given that, you know, we're in, in a novel, we might, the way she responds might be, we might get what her face looks like. We might get what her voice sounds like, you know, in a play, we're not given all that. And so it's up to us. It's up to the performers. And if we're not watching a performance, it's up to us to interpret that. And there are a number of ways you could interpret that. And I think that thinking through the various different ways that you might want to interpret that is a useful exercise. I think that's why I like to perform with my students. You know, I I think that they should get up and they should read it together and you should see, do, do the characters, do, do these, do these kids seem to be 
empathizing with characters in the same way. Because when right. they, if they're actually reading and they get up and they perform something, the degree to which they empathize or don't empathize with the student is the first thing that's going to come out. I mean, with right. the character is the first thing that's going to come out. And so I think that there's a lot of, a lot of value in that. I, but I, I think that recognizing the, the problems... I don't think there's anything wrong with recognizing the problems with a culture that mm-hmm. with what Shakespeare's with Shakespeare's cultural age. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And right. I think they should, you should also be able to do that. You should be also be able to recognize, as I said, the artistic um, effect that those things, those things make without, right. you know, you can judge it and then also not judge it at the same time, I guess is what I'm saying. You can, no, ident- yeah. you can judge it and identify what it's doing at the same time. And it's not going to hurt anything. I mean, you have, you may have to know your students to know which one to emphasize at any given time, but you know, teach them to read empathetically. <laughs> right. I think that's a great point what you're making. And I, I heartily agree with that, that it is, it's a worthy discussion kind of once it's been established what a medieval marriage was mm-hmm. and then like how does that and then uh, again think, a should question i do think so here's the thing i think if you read empathetically and yeah and if you ask things like the should questions those things that you like that that idea of what a medieval marriage would have been you know what mm-hmm. what that would have looked like in that age will come up more naturally i don't necessarily mm-hmm. think the Im- inverse happens i don't think if you necessarily come to it and you start saying well you give a lecture on what a medieval marriage would look like i don't think right. if you do that first they're necessarily going to become empathetic readers in the same way right. i could be convinced of that otherwise i think josh gibbs may argue with me on that i'm not sure but I mean, there is a, there's obviously a place for lecture when teaching, when teaching literature and there's a place for specialized knowledge. Um, but I think that being, teaching them to be empathetic readers more often opens up their minds and makes plants, it makes the soil of their minds more fertile when you plant those things in them. I think it allows them to sort of coalesce into something more meaningful that's going to stick with them longer than the other way around. Hmm. Yeah, I think that that's another tool to, this is to your point to elaborate on that, make it um, to, to embody that empathetic reading is that I do this with my students a lot. I'll have them read a scene multiple times Mm -hmm. saying, what if you play princess Catherine? I've never done this with this scene, but I'm, I've done this with other scenes in Shakespeare. What if you played princess Catherine as scared, read the line again and read her as scared. Mm -hmm. Read the line again and read her as resistant. Read the line again and read her as excited about this handsome hero. Read that, you know, so to to your point about, yeah, empathetic reading, I think Shakespeare is wide open for that because it's performed art, right? Mm -hmm. You can embody it in so many different ways, which puts the students inside the body of that character. One thing that that does is it forces them as if 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 they're saying if you're saying okay now read it as scared and as they're reading it it forces them to make to make an interpretation of the play like right. you said but yes. if that interpretation is not there then the play mm-hmm. is going to tell them that because mm-hmm. the line is not going to be able to be read that way right and so the play itself is going to dictate the terms of your interpretation mm-hmm. you know you you uh, at least at least that on the level that they're going to be doing it um especially when you're just talking about individual scenes. I mean, you can rewrite the play if you're interpret- if you're like redoing the whole play and you're Kenneth Branagh. I mean, you can you can force certain interpretations on it. But the lines themselves are often going to dictate the degree to which you can interpret something according to your own like first impressions, you know? And I think right. that one thing you could do 
is you could start in a scene like that and you could ask the girls, well, how would you, how would, what do you think you'd be most likely to feel in this way? Right. And read her in that way and And then read it differently. Yeah. You could collect, you could collect all the different things, the different responses that these kids say. You could even ask the boys, how would you, how do you think you would respond in this way? Or how do you, how do you read this? And then you could try the different things on. And that's, that's exactly what Shakespeare wants you to do. Right. 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 You can well, that's get... what acting is. You, you <laughs> exactly. know, you make choices. And but even if you leave this play, then saying which no modern reader is going to do. Well, I I don't think a lot of that's a too definitive of a statement. But not a lot of modern readers, unless they have been very distorted in their souls, are going to go away saying, "Well, that's how marriage should be." <laughs> right. Right. So right. there's no necessarily statement on marriage that I'm worried is going to make an impression on a modern reader. But to your point about the empathetic reading, even if a, a student walks away from this play with a different interpretation of the princess here, they still, if being forced to act it or watch someone act it from multiple perspectives, will at least have in their mind that maybe she was scared. Right. Well, and they're also she, just going to know the play a lot more. <laughs> that's true. Yes. So I think that's a great tool for teaching Shakespeare and a great tool for helping students interpret different characters differently. Yeah. And I think that what it does is it points you, it always, for people who really care about, we all should really care about the book first and foremost, mm-hmm. you know, after shaping the affections of our kids, of course, but in terms of the subject matter, we should right. care about the book above all. And a perf- performing things like that and discussing it in that way is always pointing you back to the book. Mm-hmm. It's it's right. because you are literally saying the words of the book, um, right. and the book is going to dictate, as I said, the the degree to which you can interpret the way you want to. Um, and and I think it's good for students to have to haggle their interpretations in performance. Mm-hmm. Like I think that that's a really interesting thing. I've seen that work really well, where you kind of have it becomes really interesting when you know, if you have one person playing the king and one person playing Kate and they begin to sort of each bring their own sort of empathetic readings to it, how do those those different readings coalesce? Like, can you have, can, can, can it be any, can you do any Kate and any Henry? You know, can mm-hmm. they still work together on the stage and what does that do to the scene? Or do they both feel the same way? Like the, the different first impressions that kids have will really open up. If you put them together, they're really going to open up the play, even if it's not exactly what you're getting at, but you as the teacher can sort of answer their questions and you can sort of guide them from that performance towards whatever it is that you're trying to get them to to think about the scene or know about the scene. Right. Yeah, I think that's true. All right. We're going to answer questions next week, but do you have any final thoughts for this week? We should wrap this up. No, I don't. I said all my thoughts. (laughs) How about you? I'm good. I'm good. (laughs) I'm still thinking about marriage and Shakespearean. So further conversations yes <laughs> well have fun being depressed um <laughs> all right well like right. i said we will post a thread on uh, on monday uh well that's today when you're listening to it but we'll post a thread for you to post your questions there and you can always email them to us at close podcast at gmail.com i guess that's it Th- heidi this has been fun i know really fun thank you david yeah thank you for heidi white and for all of us here at the close reads podcast network i'm david kern thanks so much for listening we'll be back next week and happy reading planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.